morning. Welcome to Radio Ombudsman. It's Rob Behrens here. And uh, a shout out for our expanding uh, group of listeners, uh, particularly to students at Queen Margaret's University uh, in Edinburgh studying conflict resolution who listen to this blog, and to the Ombudsman and her team at uh, the University of Denver in the United States who also listens and contributes to collective thinking. My guest today is Sarah Barclay. Sarah is the founder of the Medical Mediation Foundation, a not-for-profit organisation providing mediation and conflict resolution training to NHS hospitals. She's the co-director of the Evelina Resolution Project, which provides mediation and conflict management training to staff at the Evelina London Children's Hospital. Uh, It's really great to have you here, Sarah. Uh, You are an absolute distinguished guest. You were voted NHS Innovator uh, in 2014 by the Health Service Journal for your work on the Evelina Project. You have a Master's Degree in Medical Law and Ethics from King's College, London, and you are a former journalist, author, and award-winning BBC social affairs presenter. Now, what's particularly good about the timing of this uh, podcast is that here at the PHSO, we're in the process of a culture change that will embed early resolution and mediation into our skill set for complaints handling. So, Sarah, I want to talk to you as being one of the most respected practitioners in this small world of health service mediation. But I also have to say that uh, Sarah is someone I've known personally for many years. So, as I begin this discussion, uh, I count her as a friend. And I want to ask you, first of all, Sarah, about your background, which I know something about. But tell us a bit for the listeners about where you were born and brought up? Well, I spent the first 10 years of my life moving around a lot. I was born in London and we lived in Hampshire, we lived in Kent. But what I really remember about those first 10 years was a couple of uh, periods of time where I spent living in Denmark and especially the first time when I was seven and found myself in a Danish school with children who were just starting school for the first time, which they, they do in Denmark, they don't start till they're seven. and not being able to communicate at all, just not speaking a word of the language. I think I learned it, I can't really remember, but I remember after a while running around the playground conversing with everybody, but it was an early lesson in what it feels like not to be able to communicate and be surrounded by strangers not speaking the same language. And I spent a period of time as an adult living in Barcelona and the same thing again, it's a very humbling, valuable experience. Did you you end up learning Danish at all? Well, apparently I did. I don't remember a word of it. It's a very strange language. A lot of sounds come from the back of your throat. Um, I can remember the odd word now, but for the moment I left Denmark, um, I never spoke another word of it again. The British Ombudsman scheme is based on the Danish model, so we should acknowledge that. Now, your first career was as a journalist. Did you always want to be a journalist? I did. I think I was one of those lucky people who always had an idea of what they wanted to do. I actually started out as a financial journalist, which for anybody who knows me, they would find 
um, very amusing because maths was not my strongest subject at school. Um, but I ended up working on The Independent, which was a really great newspaper to work on in, in those early days. And then I moved to the BBC to work with Polly Toynbee and her team in the Social Affairs Unit as a social affairs and, and health reporter. And then later on to Panorama, where I spent 10 years reporting on social affairs and medical issues. Yeah. And while you were there, you covered a range of very sensitive and difficult subjects. Um, The story of Child B, um, which was about a health authority deciding that it was not going to treat a child's lapsed leukaemia. But her father decided to fight the health authority through the courts. He won, then lost on appeal. And after that, the court lifted an anonymity order it had imposed to protect child B to allow her father the opportunity to raise funds for her treatment. Um, Jamie Bowen's story then appeared on the front page of the newspapers and this resulted in an unknown benefactor paying for Jamie to have an adult treatment which wasn't at the time available to children. How was that? The story of Child B was, I think, above all the story which led me to where I am now as a mediator because looking back on it, it was very much a story about medical conflict. It was a story about a conflict between Jamie's father and her doctors. It was the story of a conflict between uh, the father and the health authorities and then into the courts. And fundamentally, this was... Um, a story about how far it was appropriate to go in continuing to treat a child for whom the medical teams thought that there was no further chance of a cure and a father who absolutely refused to give up and challenged, wanted to challenge the NHS to provide treatment which he thought could help. And of course, if we think about some of the recent cases um, that we've seen going through the courts, Charlie Gard, um, uh, Alfie Evans, who was at Alder Hay, um, I think what that shows us is that when parents and doctors disagree, um, it is very difficult to find a way through that. Parents will very rarely give up hoping for a chance of success. And making that film about Child B, and when we started making it, we had no idea whether it would be shown because she was protected by an anonymity order. Um, and, and when it was, her voice, I think, resonated amongst a lot of people. Um, what I remember her saying is, you know, never give up until you're on the last little drop of life. And that stayed with me for many years. Mm-hmm. So what that shows is that there are some situations in medical conflict where adjudication is simply not relevant. Uh, you, you need to do something else. Yes, I don't... Who knows whether mediation would have helped in those circumstances, but actually, to some degree, I think what happened was partly the result of a breakdown in communication between the father and the medical team. Yeah. And the question is, if you can be aware of that and to try and de-escalate that very early on, you may have a chance of being able to find resolution. But you may not, and it may be completely appropriate for the courts to be asked to decide. Yeah. You also made a remarkable film for Panorama about Diane Pretty, who had uh, motor neurone disease and took her case for assisted suicide to the European 
Court of Human Rights. I mean, what was that like? That was one of the most difficult films we ever had to make. And we made it in what turned out to be the last six weeks of Diane's life. And when we met her, she was not able to communicate apart from using one uh, finger on her right hand to tap out words into a, a voice synthesizer like the one we all know from Stephen Hawking. Um, so my challenge was trying to ask Diane questions which would bring out why she was feeling that actually for her at that moment being alive was no longer what she wanted to, to, to be. She wanted to have a choice about when she died um, and to bring out some of the complexities but all my questions had to be phrased in a way which really she could only answer yes and no to. Uh, but what she said to me was will you make a film that shows people what it's like to live in my shoes and why it might be that I could feel that actually death was better than life. And that was a big challenge and we wanted to respect her wishes. And it was a really challenging, uh, upsetting film to make because we spent a lot of those six weeks in her house showing what her life was like. And after she lost her case, um, I think she died a couple of weeks later, but not in the way she, she would have chosen to die. Mm. So, I mean, these are landmark um, occasions where many people would be satisfied that they'd reached the pinnacle of their career. But you, you, you chose to build on it and to transition uh, into your current work. Can you tell us a bit about um, your thinking uh, moving from being a journalist to becoming a mediator? What really struck me in the, in the many hours, days, weeks I spent making stories with families and with patients, with doctors, was that when things go wrong or when very difficult ethical dilemmas arise, the impact on everybody is enormous. Um, and I began to think, I began to get interested in, in the ethics and the medical ethics and medical law, which underpinned a lot of those stories. So I, I started the move away from journalism by doing a master's in medical law and ethics at, at King's. And then um, later I was invited to become a lay member of the Great Ormond Street uh, Clinical Ethics Committee, where we had... Um, many cases that we were asked to, to consider where doctors were considering whether experimental or innovative treatment was appropriate for a child and we could see the clinical team wrestling with those very difficult dilemmas about whether it was appropriate to experiment, what were the risks and benefits and we would also sometimes hear from the families about why they wanted to give their child that chance. And I began to think that there might be something more positive and practical that could be done to support everybody when those situations arise, arose. And that's when I started thinking about mediation. Mm. Um, I, the next question might sound a bit facile, but um, it's not in the sense that understanding what mediation is, is a core issue. And there's lots of debate in the literature about it. Um, but what, what do you understand mediation to be? I, I think I probably take a much too simplistic approach. I think mediation is about helping people have really difficult conversations about really difficult things that they might not otherwise be able to have. Um, it, is, it, it is a neutral, impartial process, and the real strength of that is that it means that 
the difficult conversations that are happening are supported by somebody who is able to be impartial, not to make judgments, to be able to acknowledge everybody's feelings. Um, it's a voluntary process, and I know there's a discussion at the moment about whether in medical mediation it should be compulsory. And I understand that, but I think the value of mediation is in, is in its voluntariness. It should never be a tick box exercise. So yes, I think fundamentally it's about helping bringing people together and talking about very difficult things that they might not otherwise have been able to do in a more adversarial, formal process. Do you think there are any essential skills for mediators or is that over-complicating the issue? No, I think the absolutely essential skill you have to have as a mediator um, is to be a very good listener and listening is the listening muscle is a muscle I think you have to train up and activate um, because it's it's very difficult and I know when I was training as a mediator and when we trained a, a group of clinicians at, at the Evelina the one thing that they said was we thought we were good communicators and good listeners and we realized that we weren't because we're very good at jumping to judgments as I think we all are it is very hard to empty your head of assumptions and judgments and just listen and when you think about some of the territory that we're working in here uh, with here the when accidents have happened clinical errors have been made the impact that that has on the people who are parties to a mediation and on the clinicians um, that the skill that the mediator brings is to be able to support that very difficult emotions which are coming into the room and this kind of mediation you have to be able to deal with high emotions and not all mediators can. No and not all investigators can. So what, what you're saying is that some of the core skills of mediation are relevant to people in the ombudsman world even if they're not professional mediators listening for example communication these are treasured uh, skills that not all of us have in sufficient depth i think it helps to remember that underpinning so much of this is what what i call the human stuff um, if we allow the, these things to become too process driven in terms of managing complaints, perhaps when they get to your office. Um, I think we risk losing some of the opportunity that we have to communicate, to be able to support people in being open and honest, and to be able to acknowledge the pain that they have suffered as a result of what has happened, whether it's been an honest mistake or clinical negligence um, or a, an accident happening that, that couldn't have been prevented. Um, and so those mediation skills are appropriate, not just to the formal process, but to, I think, to health professionals working on the front line in, in hospitals. And that's where a lot of our teaching is focused. I like to think of mediation as widely as possible in that respect. That's helpful. And I want to come back to that in terms of thinking about where it fits in the alternate dispute resolution panoply. But... Uh, for now, can you tell us a bit more about your work at the Evelina Children's Hospital in London? Well, the Evelina project actually began with a phone call from a consultant when I was on a train coming back from Hull. And she said, I found your website. I work at the Evelina. We have a very difficult case, which I don't think needs to go to court. And I don't think it needs to go to an ethics committee. But I wonder if mediation might help. 
And as a result of working with that consultant, with that team and with that family, um, she said, we have found this incredibly helpful, having an independent, neutral voice come in and support us through this difficult case. So we applied jointly to the guys in St Thomas's charity to run a pilot project. And that ran for two years, providing mediation and training to a large number of health professionals at the Evelina. And for the last three years, it has been funded by the hospital itself. So mm -hmm. it's now becoming more embedded in, in what the hospital might call business as usual. Um, and uh, we, th I think it was probably the first project of its kind in, a, in an NHS children's hospital to bring mediation and mediation skills training into the hospital itself and I think as time goes by people the, the staff there say to me we, we've started to recognize the warning signs of, of conflict with families earlier than we used to do mm. and perhaps think about how we're going to manage them so mediation skills are just as important as providing a formal mediation process too. In any um uh, example of where new systems or ideas are being introduced you you tend to get people who who sometimes oversell what it is they're bringing to the party and there's an element of optimism bias among some of the proponents of mediation um, but could you give one or two examples of where mediation has been successful in your work at Evelina? From my experience I think m mediation tends to be successful when there is some clear territory to be mediated. So it has to be there has to be some mediatable grounds in, in the middle. Um, I have found it to be most successful where there has been communication breakdown between a family and a treating team, um, where there are decisions about treatment to be made or decisions about um, how communication will, will, will work between a team and, and the family um, and sometimes also where there are apologies to be made and some thinking out of the box to be done about how a family and a team can work together. I think the cases which are more challenging but they're not the reason for not trying mediation are the cases in which the medical team is saying there is no evidence to suggest that there's any chance of a cure and a family who for many understandable reasons will not and cannot give up hope and think that there is something out there that is worth trying. Those, those are more difficult cases I think and we've seen them in the recent Charlie Gard case, in the recent case of Alfie Evans in, in Alder Hay. It doesn't mean you shouldn't try and bring people together to have a conversation because the value of mediation can sometimes narrow the, the areas of disagreement. Um, but I think we should be honest about when it doesn't work, uh, as well as when it, when it does. Thank you. Um, uh, the health service uh, has some particular cultural characteristics which, which may make uh, mediation particularly difficult. I'm thinking of uh, professional dominance, clinical hegemony, hierarchy, defensiveness because it's in the public domain. Um, is it more difficult in, to mediate in the health service than in other areas? Well, I haven't mediated in other areas, so I can't compare it, but, but what I think is very acute in, in the health services, there is still, despite many people's 
best efforts, there is still a culture of of blame in the NHS. There is still um, uh, enormous constraints because of resources. And even I've been working in the NHS now in different hospitals for five years, and certainly those constraints feel more acute now than they did when I started. And, and so when mistakes happen or when communication breaks down, there's a huge amount of upset and anger amongst both the families and the, and the staff. And I think it becomes very challenging sometimes to bring them together um, because while a family might want staff to say sorry, staff equally are feeling, actually, if we had been better supported, if there had been more resource here, perhaps the mistake wouldn't have happened in the first place. And we have to acknowledge that that is very much part of the territory and the high stakes of that territory. When we think that it's about families who have lost a loved one, a family whose child may have come out of an operation uh, in, in ways which people didn't expect, somebody's died. Those are hugely emotional, difficult areas to to mediate. And I think one of the things that strikes me very often is when doctors say, you know, emotion is quite frightening. What we do as health professionals is we like to fix things. We like to make things better. The really scary stuff sometimes is in the emotion because we don't know where that's taking us. So I think the value of mediating and training health professionals to have those skills gives them the confidence to engage in the emotions that patients and parents are describing um, is very valuable. You've called this an emotional war zone. And what's interesting is that when Scott Morrish came on here, he talked to me about the situation where complainants go through trauma and case handlers at the ombudsman go through trauma for not being able to deal with the trauma. And that that really seems to point to the same thing. Yes, and we absolutely have to acknowledge that trauma on both on both sides. One of the things that sometimes gets lost in the cases which become public is the trauma that the professionals feel too. And we have to acknowledge and respect that and help build confidence. Um, yes, I think using mediation skills to equip complaints handlers and staff with the with the uh, with the confidence to be able to go into a conversation with um, an upset distressed angry parent who may feel that an investigation uh, has not been thorough enough has not uncovered the things that they hope they would uncover um, you need to prepare for that conversation and you need to um, structure it in a way which will allow the, the, the parent or the patient to be able to trust you mm. and to be able to explain what the impact has been and what's happened to them. Um, and unless that impact is acknowledged, I think people will find it very difficult to move on. And the skill in not only doing the investigation but in communicating the results of the investigation lies in acknowledging and helping the, the complainant and the, the patient, the parent, to come to terms with what has been found. And of course, some people never will. Sarah, I want to press you a bit about this because there may be a cosiness about some of the ideas of mediation that we should be sceptical about. Can I give you an example? 
What about a situation in a hospital, which I have seen more than once, where the care plan for a patient has been fabricated by the clinical staff after the patient has died? Are you saying that that is an issue that can be mediated? It depends what the purpose of the mediation is. Um, I would start by saying it absolutely should not be taking the place of a thorough investigation into what happened, appropriate um, redress and apology, learning for the, from the, for the clinical staff, um, an understanding of why the clinical staff might have felt that they had to do that. I think the value of mediation would be in bringing everybody together to uh, to, to talk about what's happened, to allow apologies to be made if apologies are appropriate, to allow a family to talk about the impact of what has happened on them and to see if you can get to a point where people can move on as a result of that. But it's never an either or. It's, a, it's part of the process. So one of the consequences of doing this challenging work is that there's an certain amount of stress involved in it not just for the participants but for the mediator and one of the things I found in university uh, life was that uh, mediators in universities had burnout they could only do it for a certain time is that a common feature of the trade? Um, I think you have to be very careful in how you look after yourself as a mediator. Mediation, unlike um, counselling, for example, or psychotherapy, which has inbuilt supervision um, as part of the process. Mediators don't have that. It's up to us to seek supervision. It's up to us to debrief with people we trust. Um, And I certainly have to do that when there's been a particularly difficult case it's hard as it was when I was a journalist it is hard to walk away from some of the stories that you've heard um, however professional however impartial you are when you're mediating um, it's hard not to take them home with you and you have to find a way of managing that of putting it behind you of learning from it and, and moving on because otherwise you simply wouldn't be able to do it hmm. now you have many skills you're, but you're not an ombudsman And so you may choose to not answer the next question, but do you think that from everything that you've experienced that mediation skills are useful to ombudsmen as part of the range of uh, skills that they should deploy? Well, I think the important part of what you said is part of a range of of skills um, because it should never be um, an an either-or. And I think... Perhaps the value of of incorporating mediation skills more widely into your work is in the in the investigatory process, is in the way that's done, is in the way that that complainants um, are engaged with, and actually even using the word complainant as well. They're human beings to whom really tough stuff has happened, um, and equipping them to have those difficult conversations on the phone or in person in communicating the results of the investigations that you have done, in making them feel they're part of the process. So I think it's a very, it's a useful skill, but I would never suggest it was used as an alternative to the really thorough investigatory part of your work. Thank you, that's interesting. 
Now, when we uh, announced that you were coming on the program and we asked for questions, we got quite a lot of uh, negative responses, not about you, but about mediation being applied to the ombudsman world. Um, and a number of people on Twitter said that because they'd lost all trust with the NHS and the management of their complaints, they felt that mediation could never apply to them because there wasn't integrity uh, amongst the service users and the, the medics. Is that something you could recognise? Yes, absolutely. I, can, I understand why, why, why people would feel that. When th- there, are, there are certainly many uh, patients and parents who I've met who felt that they've been, they've been driven to feel that they need to complain because they felt that uh, what had happened, they hadn't been listened to because something had happened which needed to be investigated and learning from that. Um, and when trust has broken down, between between a patient, between a family member and, and, and the team, actually that that spreads and, and it can result uh, in just feeling that actually you can't trust anybody out there. Why would you? It feels like a cover-up. Um, so I think the key in, in, is start, in starting to re-engage is you have to start from the position of trying to rebuild trust and confidence and that can be extremely difficult to do. Often years will have for some of the people who are making complaints which may end up on your desk Um, and that is years of feeling not listened to not investigation, not having a fair hearing um, and a lot of grieving still for the thing that happened in the first place so I understand why perhaps people might think that mediation is a bit of a a secret process, I would say it's confidential but I understand why people might think it was secret and should never be used as a as an alternative to to thorough investigation. That's interesting because my my next question was about those people who argue that because we need to hold public uh, services to account, um, that the confidential nature of mediation militates against that and therefore should be used quite sparingly. That's a really tricky one, is it? Because actually, mediation is not a process which is about holding public bodies to account. Yeah. And public bodies need to be held to account. Um, I think, uh, and, and therefore, the, the the territory of the parameters of the mediation in in these cases need to be very clearly agreed between all the parties. Um, and I think uh, it's a lot of reason for not doing it it's a it's a it's a process it's a it's a process which can run alongside formal investigations um, and I think where it's helpful in running it alongside is in again back to the, the communication with the parties involved involving them in the investigation keep it, having conversations with them that make them feel that they are being listened to that is all very much part of I think how a complaints process should be handled and I think it's not always the case that that happens. The complainants can feel very excluded from that process. Okay, thank you. I mean, I could go on all day asking these questions because you've got a very unique perspective and it's important. But my last question to you is you're clearly a pioneer, okay? So how do you see the Medical Mediation Foundation principles developing 
uh, is this a model purely for health service uh, issues or could it go wider than that? Well, from my perspective, there's quite enough to be getting on with in, in, in the medical world. That's, that's where my focus will, will always be. That's where the focus, I think, of the foundation will, will always be. Um, the two areas, well, three. So I think it's a, it's a really interesting time for medical mediation now. We've seen the judge in the Charlie Gard case talk about uh, wishing to see more cases mediated. I think that's a very good thing, but I think we also have to be really rigorous in evaluating when mediation works in those cases and never to see it as a, as a tick box exercise and to say, well, we tried, but it didn't work. We need to think really carefully about how mediation will best be used in those cases. Um, I think the training and embedding of mediation skills into the NHS is very much the focus of, of where I want to see our work over the next few years because I see the results on the front line in hospital wards yeah. with staff who are beginning to have conversations differently and feel more confident. And the third thing that I um, am currently working on is a, is a piece of research uh, which will look at um, evaluating a sort of formal framework to help health professionals and hospitals recognise and manage conflict as a team. Um, teams are very diverse in the health profession now and we have to think about how we can help them to work together and, and I think help them to think about recognising and managing conflict rather like they recognise the symptoms of a disease and manage it. It's yeah. something that needs to be thought about, recognised, managed proactively to give people the best possible chance of de-escalating quickly, resolving quickly. So those three areas I think will keep you busy for a, a while yet. Uh, I'm sure they will. I mean this has been uh, magnificent. Thank you very much. It's stimulating, insightful, thought-provoking. I mean what I take from this is that mediation is not in a box on its own. It can inform other processes and we need to be flexible in how we think about it. And, and secondly that it has to be used in context and you have to think very carefully and prepare very carefully rather than just assume that you can apply mediation techniques to any situation. That, that's, that's not going to work. So on behalf of everybody, uh, thank you very much indeed for coming. Thank you uh, to everyone for listening. Uh, subscribe to our SoundCloud channel and follow PHS Ombudsman on Twitter for updates. There are some big names coming onto this program uh, in the coming weeks, so watch out for that. And sign up for our next open meeting, uh, which is taking place in central London on the 22nd of May, where we have James Titcombe coming to talk to us and many other distinguished speakers. So this is Rob Barron signing off, wishing you good day. Thank you for listening to Radio Ombudsman. We'd love to know what you think, so please leave a review or comments. If you like what you hear, please share and subscribe for future editions.